0: The Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, podcaster, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. Uh, The guest on this week's episode in Budget Week was particularly apposite. It is John Mills, not the dead actor who was in uh, Ice Cold in Alex and uh, Who's That Girl, but the entrepreneur, millionaire labour donor and funder and driving force behind the Labour Leave campaign. last episode we had Gisela Stewart on, who was Labour and Leave, but she was not Labour Leave. That was a different organisation. It was all very confusing at the uh, time of the referendum, do you remember? John is also a uh, domestic knickknack magnate. His firm, JML, sells all sorts of weird and wonderful and often useful items for the home. So we talked about how he thinks Brexit will affect the economy and the Labour Party, of which he is a, a member and a donor. And there are, suffice to say, some particularly surprising revelations towards the end of our chat. And we are joined um, for this discussion in John's lovely house by, coming from UK to changing Europe, Professor Matthew Goodwin. Matt's been a sort of go-to man on UKIP affairs in the past, but his interests are, are wider than just that. He's written a well-known and well-received book called Revolt on the Right, and he talks about the factors fueling political dissatisfaction during our chat. Uh, just a quick word on the music. Uh, We've started, as usual, with Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. Uh, I've said throughout in the last few episodes that I'm open to feedback on this issue, and I've had feedback! A man called David Summerlink got in touch to say that the music's rubbish. Well, thanks, David. Thanks for listening in the first place. So there will be different music when I'm back at the end of this podcast. Uh, If nothing else, that's got to be worth sticking around for. That's just one of a number of treats I have for you at the other end of this podcast. But for now, here's me, Matt Goodwin, and first, John Mills, on how he thinks Brexit will affect the economy.
1: I mean, I, I think that uh, certainly as far as the economy is concerned, I don't think Brexit is going to make a massive difference to the economy. You know, I think one way or another, Um, there will be some resolution to the problem of uh, trade with the single market. I think businesses on the whole are pushing ahead with investment. The GDP is still growing. I don't think it's going to make an enormous problem. I think the economy's got much longer deep-seated problems, which actually Brexit has been a bit of a distraction from. Are Labour keen to talk to you? You're the chair of Labour Leave. Yeah. Um,
0: You know, is Keir Starmer calling you up? To, talk, to get your point of view on, on where Labour should be on Brexit?
1: Um, no, I mean, Keir Starmer's my MP, Yeah. Um, but I, I haven't spoken to him for months. Um, and, you know, I don't think the PLP's really reaching out all that much. I mean, what we're trying to do is put pressure from, on them from the outside to take, all, in our view, a sort of realistic stance about what uh, can be done. And our concern, mainly, is that the more that the Labour Party says that uh, staying in the single market is absolutely essential and worth paying anything for, the worse the terms we're likely to finish up on will be. And this seems to me to be a very big mistake. But Labour's not saying we should stay in the single market, is it? Uh, Well, certainly some of them have been, yes, very
0: strongly. But the official line is we stay in the single market for this transition period, and apparently that's a
1: new position. Um, Well, that's true. But, I mean, there are quite a lot of people in the Labour Party who think that's just a step to staying in the, uh, more or less in the EU on on, on a continuing basis mm-hmm. and staying in the single market with the same free movement of uh, goods that we've got at the moment. And I just don't think that's compatible with leaving the EU at all. Um, what's your understanding of the Labour position, Matt? <laughs> He's a, he
0: a massive Labour donor and chair of Labour Leave, and he doesn't seem to be entirely clear on what Labour position
2: is, or I don't think Labour are entirely clear. What's I, your think, I think I think what Labour Leave understood early on was that they're even before the referendum, there, there was an instinctive uh, uh, base of support within a lot of Labour seats for uh, the vote uh, to, to leave. Mm. Um, and that that wasn't only about uh, economics, it was also about you know, concerns over sovereignty, identity and free movement. And I think now, fast forward to where the debate's gone, I think even within, within those same areas, there is quite a lot of suspicion that the vote for brexit will somehow be thwarted by you know an elite or some description right whether it's fi- you know financial services whether it's parliament whether it's the eu and i think there's a concern um, both on the Labour side and the Conservative side, that they'll end up with something like, you know, EEA full blown membership, which sort of begs the question of, you know, what was this whole thing about if we're going to end up in a situation where we have less influence, less power, less say? Uh, and, on the, and on the Labour side, of course, those questions were especially pressing because the referendum cut directly across the Labour uh, electorate, mm. if you contrast Doncaster with now Battersea, sure. you know, these are these are universes that are completely, you know, yes. parallel universes,
1: don't, don't really have much in common. No, I mean, I agree with that. I mean, I think Labour is facing two different ways. One for the uh, sort of Lambeth-Battersea-type uh, constituencies and the other ones for the north of England. And I don't think you can go on like this. I mean, I think sooner or later Labour's going to have to come down on one side or the other or somewhere in the middle. I think actually it probably will come down somewhere in the middle. What? Where? Where's the middle? Well, I mean, I, <laughs> that's Birmingham, well, I suppose. I, well, I suspect. I, I suspect. <laughs> you know, there'll be a transition period for a couple of years, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, when we'll go on paying in money to the European Union, that'll come off the bill that in the end has got to be paid. Uh, and, you know, that's not a million miles away from where Labour is. And I think just quickly on on, on that, yeah, we, also, we always have
2: to work back from why did people vote for Brexit in the first place. And if you look at the Leave voters, mm-hmm. a couple of things we now forget. Number one is uh, mostly voters basically expected the economy to worsen, and that might not necessarily just be because of Brexit, it's probably more to do with the fact that they hadn't had a pay rise for 10 years and you know economic life had been pretty bad yeah. anyway because of underlying structural yeah. problems in the economy. But secondly, they also expected that vote for Brexit to deliver uh, not just control of migration, but reduced migration. Mm-hmm. Right? So those are the two planks that effectively underpin that vote. So this is the, uh, the context of the debate that we're in now. So if we end up moving in a, in a, in a very different direction, we'll end up with a large number of, of disgruntled voters, both on the Labour side and the Conservative side. Uh, we're going to have disgruntled
1: voters whatever happens, aren't we? There's no way of avoiding disgruntlement at the end of all this. Uh, well, I, I think the prospects for the economy are actually pretty poor. I mean, I don't think there's going to be much chance of getting wage increases for most people for the next decade or so. You know, if you have the economy growing at less than 2% per annum, which is what's happened over the last seven or eight years, by the time you take into account the increase in the population, reducing wage share in the GDP... More more money paid abroad as a result of the fact that uh, you know every year we have a big balance of payments deficit. You know you can begin to see how wage increases just going to get stuck, and that seems to me to be a really daunting pr- prospect for the Labour Party as well as everybody else.
2: I think I'd add to that as well that. The scepticism that we are seeing among voters, I think, has also been fuelled by the events since the referendum in terms of the economy. You know, all of the, m- most of the economic forecasts, including those from the Treasury and Osborne, haven't really held up. Foreign mm-hmm. direct investment's been broadly OK. Um, you know, the, the, the currency is... Perhaps we haven't had the big boost in, in exports as, uh, to the extent that some Brexiteers were hoping, but we have had some uh, you know, modest gains. There have been some big investments... Um, the different, different areas of the country, some of which haven't perhaps impacted the debate as much as, you know, rumours of, of bankers leaving to Frankfurt. Yeah. So the economic picture has actually been more mixed than you, would, um, than you would get were you to only read the headlines of the Financial Times.
0: Yeah, I mean, that mixed picture uh, isn't the thing we've mainly learnt from Brexit in terms of economics, is that economics is either just bunkum or B, in the eye of the beholder, because you've got the Brexiteers saying, well, look, it hasn't been a disaster, and you've got the levers going, well, things have got worse, things have got more expensive, you know, uh, that you can point to various uh, indicators that things have got slightly worse, you know, growth is very slow.
1: No, I think the Brexiteers were very broadly right, and the uh, remainder is very, you know, substantially wrong about the projections. I mean, the projections made by the Treasury uh, about the collapse of... Uh, the economy, if there was a, a, a lead vote, 500,000 increase in uh, unemployment and all this sort of thing. I mean, these were really draconian threats yeah. that were hung over and turned out to be completely wrong. I mean, I think, to be honest with you, some of the claims that Brexiteers make about how well the economy is going to do if it throws off the shackles of Europe and gets rid of regulation and all mm. the rest of it uh, can be overblown as well. I suggest, as I, I said earlier on, I don't think it's going to make a huge difference to the the trajectory of the British economy. Well, why do it then? Why Brexit if it's not going to make any difference? Should have stayed in. Well, I think there are a whole lot of other issues that uh, were were involved as well, like control and immigration and all this sort of thing, which uh, were were very important to people. Uh, And I think on balance, if we do bring tariffs down and we do have an outward looking policy and we do negotiate trade deals, there's a reasonable chance that we'll do better. I think one of the real jokers in the pack actually was that the people who projected that we was going to turn right down after Brexit didn't factor in the pound coming down, which actually turned out to be really quite a substantial boost to the economy. If that hadn't happened, I think the projections from the Treasury and the OECD and all the rest of them might have been a lot more accurate. Ah, oh, okay. Now I don't really
0: understand this, this pound. You're a big fan of devaluation, essentially.
1: Yes, I mean, I I think one of the curses of this country is we've had an overvalued currency for a very long period of time, and this is why we've de-industrialised, why rates of investment are so low, why we're running a big balance of payments deficit, all these other things. I think we would be better off if the pound went down. I think actually one of the interesting possible outcomes is that if we do finish up with a hard Brexit, the pound will come down, whatever the authorities want, and this actually paradoxically might be much better for the economy than most people would think. Because you'll then get a resurgence of investment and reindustrialization which will rebalance the economy the way nothing else will.
0: But the pound has devalued. It has come down. My holiday was way more expensive this summer. Uh, Lego is more expensive. It's yeah. quite a big expense in my life. Uh, Marmite, butter, everything seems to have got more expensive. I, I, you know, I'm not exporting anything, so surely devaluation, doesn't devaluation make stuff,
1: you know, stuff in the shops more expensive? It, uh, well, it does. It, it, it varies actually. If you look what happened after we came out of the ERM in 1992, when we were told that we were going to have more inflation and the economy was going to tank, actually, the, completely the opposite happened. Inflation went down and the economy grew every year for 15 years. So, I think a lot of these fears about inflation are misplaced. But, you know, nothing is costless. And the answer is, if you do have a lower value for the currency, which makes exporting more profitable, and gets the economy growing more rapidly, you will have more expensive holidays abroad, and some things that are imported will be more expensive. Well, that's bad for normal people, isn't it? Well, I I mean,
0: isn't that the argument? You can sit here as chair of GMO, that'll be fine.
1: Uh, But for ordinary people, it's going to be more expensive. If GDP goes up and the population stays the same, Ah, it can't be true that everybody's worse off. Ah, It's just mathematically impossible that's the case. (laughs) I think also we need to remember that...
2: uh, there were a variety of motives behind that referendum decision and they weren't all economic and we have to we have to uh, step back you know and just remember that uh, there were some very strongly felt concerns over uh, national sovereignty and the jurisdiction of European courts and what seemed to be a distant set of institutions that perhaps haven't always seemed as mm. transparent and accountable as they should uh, have been. And secondly, that issue of migration and borders uh, and control. Now, the Remain camp before the referendum made a fundamental error in that they, they only talked to people about economic interest yeah and so they took the identity issues off the table since the referendum what i've personally been amazed by is the extent to which the remain uh, camp if you like has doubled down on that narrative rather than trying to stand back and say well We disconnected from the electorate because we only talked about the economy. And now we're only going to warn them again about the economic consequences of a hard Brexit. Uh, Yeah, because it's the economy, stupid. I mean, that is the... the, Well, hang on, hang on. The the number one message message of politics across the West over the last two years is that 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 narrative of it's the economy, stupid, was fundamentally wrong. That it was also about people's concerns over the direction of their nation, over community, over belonging. None of which is inherently uh, racist or ne- not necessarily, um, you know, distasteful. It was about a sense that they wanted to be able to control. Uh, you know who came in, who went out, uh, uh, w- what was the border security amid a, a world that was going through the refugee crisis and where the European Union looked like it didn't have uh, a competent, clear strategy for dealing with that. Uh, and also a sense that they wanted to have control over uh, laws uh, and institutions uh, within a domestic sphere. Now put all of those together and you've got a powerful set of motives, yet even still, we are only talking about one side of that, which is the economy. Yeah,
0: you shared an interesting piece on Twitter that said that cultural factors are uh, topping economic factors these days in driving... Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing very simply, but, you know, they're driving
2: politics perhaps more
0: um, well, which, in recent times.
2: Which is what we've known for 20 years in, in social science, that people's concerns over th- perceived threats to their identity and to their group matter just as much, if not more, as worries over threats to their jobs and their houses and and, and, and welfare and so on. If we take away those concerns over movement and we we don't address them directly or we just tinker around the edges with some reforms that won't make much difference, then we are building up much bigger problems uh, down the line. Uh, People have sent a very clear message which is that they want fundamental reform of that issue. Brexit is the victory of the social scientists over the economists well, I think the economists, you know, I've had debated with economists many times since the referendum. The economists got gotten a lot wrong both before the referendum and after the referendum and are still kind of struggling to explain why uh, Brexit, why the vote for Brexit happened and why the economy has not crashed to the extent that they thought it did. Now, one response to that is, well, Brexit hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Well, that's not actually what, econ- what many economists were saying yeah. before the <clears> referendum, <throat> which right. is what, there would be an immediate downturn yeah. and re- recession and emergency budget and the rest of mm. it.
0: Um, Why were you Brexit then, John?
1: Well, I have been involved in the uh, EU uh, as an issue for a long period of time. And I always thought that we joined on the wrong terms, uh, that it was going to be expensive, that it was going to be put prices up, food prices in particular, that we weren't getting a very good deal out of it all. Mm -hmm. That's an argument
0: for reform, not for leaving, isn't it?
1: Well, if you think you can reform the EU from the outside, Britain could do this. I mean, I think successive uh, politicians in this country have tried to do this, tried to get Britain at the centre of Europe, uh, everybody from uh, Sir John Major onwards and backwards, mm. and it's never really worked. Uh, I think it is very difficult. I mean, I think there are some really quite fundamental differences between the UK and continental Europe and our history and our legal system and our common law. Uh, a lot of these sort of fundamental attitudes that people have, uh, which 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 have meant that we've never really been as wholehearted about being in the EU as most other countries have. Mm. Um, and coming forward, I mean, I think the EU has been very expensive in terms of our contribution. You know, I entirely agree with you that uh, you know the strong sentiments about control and, and 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 all that kind of thing. And, and and just in general, it just seemed to me that the Europe that we've got at the moment is not going forward as fast as everywhere else. It's a diminishing part of the world economy. It's, it's uh, not a tremendously good trading partner to have because it's not growing very fast. And really breaking away and, and doing something outside that was, was on balance. Very much on balance. Yeah. Uh, the right thing to do.
0: Um, I mean, that all sounds, uh, you, you know, obviously you can, there's plenty of people can, you can dispute bits in that and all the rest of it. But um, what are you doing in the Labour Party then? Why aren't you knocking around with John Redwood and uh, Ian Duncan Smith and all that sort of Well, people? I think the
1: EU has always been an issue, which has split parties. Yes. It's split the Labour Party. <laughs> I mean, in 1975, when the last referendum took place, um, nearly half the Labour Party was in favour of leaving. Mm. Um, the Conservatives in those days, of course, were very much in favour of staying in. Now yes. it's swung round the other way. But, I mean, the reality is that there's never been... A, a clear split with the, one of the major parties on one side and the other on the other. Yeah. There's always been distance on both sides. But the
0: argument in on in labor was it was an argument against the EU from the left that it was a, a you know, capitalist, a, capitalist yeah, a, yeah you know scheme um presumably as a capitalist you mm. could, you're not averse a, a to capitalist schemes so you sit sort of in a fairly unique position don't you as as mm. yes I think very pro business pro labor anti
1: EU. Yes, I think I am am relatively unusual in that respect. I'm not sure I'm necessarily wrong. Ah, well that was going to be
2: my next question. Don't you sometimes think well uh, I'm wrong? But just on that this is the fascinating point about where Britain is now. We've just done a big piece of work for the Joseph Rantry Foundation Mm. and you know we've had this debate since the referendum about uh, the possibility of a new political party in Britain, a centrist party. The Democrats. There is space for a new political party but it's not a Macron style centrist party. The new political party in Britain where there is space for one, is what the voters didn't get in June, which is a party that is pro-Brexit, respects the decision uh, of Brexit, but also takes things like economic unfairness and inequality very seriously. And the problem is that the Labour Party is only really pitching to the redistribution inequality angle through Corbyn, and the Conservatives are really only pitching to that pro-Brexit message, while not really taking into account the inequality uh, message, the feeling of being left behind, uh, the negative effects of globalisation in a big way. So what we found um, in this report was that in the end, low-income voters, uh, most of them sided with Corbyn, actually over their instincts. They sided with him because of the economic Mm. uh, issues. But instinctively, they completely agreed with the conservative pro-Brexit reform-free movement, uh, agenda. Now, this, is, this tells us where Britain may be going, because this was the best election ever for the Conservatives among the working class. You haven't heard that much after the referendum, but they did phenomenally well yeah. among working class mm. voters. Not quite as well as they needed to win a majority. Yeah. But this is why a lot of these traditional alignments in British politics are up for grabs. Not by a centrist, liberal, Macron-style party, but by some by, by a party that pitches both to their identity concerns, and their desire for economic um, protection. Are they up for grabs, or is it just a period of flux? We get Brexit out of the way in a couple of years, and everything goes back to normal. Well, I mean, I don't think we will get Brexit uh, d- done in a couple of years. <laughs> I think the debate will rumble on for quite, quite a few years. But what we're not going to see, I don't think, is a reversion to those traditional party allegiances that govern Britain through the 50s and the 60s. Mm. If you look just at the education divide in Britain now graduates swung to Labour at this election Uh, non-graduates swung to the Conservatives at this election Uh, the, 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 the base of support for Labour is clearly unsustainable over the longer term you cannot hold Canterbury Battersea Doncaster, Burnley, in the same coalition over the long term. You just can't, right? This will inevitably uh, fragment and break. Um, and the Conservatives have no meaningful, clear response to what just happened to them in June. There is no policy agenda yet that's come out that's understood and grasped the extent to which they are alienating themselves among young Generation X, Millennial, Britain, as well as urban uh, liberal areas like Battersea. So there is an opening, but it's not currently
1: being... Uh, it's good carried. fun, though, isn't it? It's good fun if you're interested in politics, where we are right yes, now. Yes, it is. I mean, you've got the first-past-the-post system, which makes it very uh, difficult oh, yes. to get uh, a new party going. Yeah. Uh, you've got all the long-established allegiances that people have got to Labour and Conservative, all the constituency Labour parties and all this sort of thing. Um, you know, just getting the infrastructure going for a new party, I think, is, is very difficult. Um, if we had a proportional uh, voting system in this country, I think it would be very different. Then I think there would be uh, a realignment. But I must say, because of the voting system, I mean, UKIP's sort of more or less collapsed. The Lib Dems really aren't doing very well. I mean, they're a the possible mm. growth point for a central party, but don't seem to be really getting there. Yeah. You know, I, I suspect that there will be sort of all sorts of fractures and changes of... Uh, uh, position and realignments. But I suspect that, you know, in the next election, you'll still have Labour and Conservative taking most of the votes. Would you be interested in a new party? Not very, because, um, you know, the concerns that uh, I've just expressed about the viability of it all. I mean, I was around when the SDP got going in the early 1980s. And, you know, I was quite tempted to to join. Because, you know, we had a real far left uh, advance here in Camden. Uh, but course, in the end, I didn't. And I stuck to the Labour Party. out of really loyalty more than anything else. And looking back, I think that was a good decision taken for the right reasons. Are you a Corbynista? No, I mean, I that far left politics is not my scene, really. Um, but I mean, I think the reality is that if the Labour Party is going to get back to uh, being able to bring together these two wings, I mean, I'm completely with you. There's a sort of nativist north of England wing built around community and trade unions and self-help and all the rest of it and then you've got this urban very internationalist idealistic um, very middle-class element of the Labour Party and if they can't be brought back together somehow then I think Labour's going to be in dire trouble I do agree with that you're still a Labour donor yeah you're always
0: <laughs> <laughs> Labour, a donor. Labour um, well then don't you want to do something about it you know, surely you're not just handing over your cash and going. I oh, mean, yeah, well, no, I've, you I've... know, this is you're saying. I mean, clearly there are problems with the Labour Party where it is at the moment, in the sense that, as you say, it, it's essentially split in in lots of different ways. You presumably want them to get back into power
1: someday. Well, I'd like to get them to power, but I'd like the Labour Party to get back to power with policies that are actually going to work and deliver. And I think the big changes that Labour needs to be able to introduce are, first of all, to get the economy growing again fast enough to increase wages and salaries. Mm. And secondly, I think there are three really big axes of inequality in this country. And there's obviously ones around income and and wealth and life chances, but there are also huge regional Mm. inequalities and huge generational inequalities. And really, without economic growth, you can't do anything much about any of these. And if the Labour Party can't get the economy to grow and can't deal with any of these major areas of inequality, uh, it's in bad shape. I mean, Labour should really have seen
2: Brexit coming. If Labour had really been connected to the grassroots, where where and and you know the fact that almost seventy percent of Labour-held seats voted for Brexit and Labour MPs were surprised by the result, I think speaks volumes.
0: Talking and
2: editing, talking and editing. Somebody said to me yesterday, we're going to spend the next five years debating our exit from the EU and the five years after that trying to get back into the EU. Ah, oh yes. In a way, way you can see um, many pathways that we may follow, but one pathway that... I'm beginning to think is is quite plausible is we end up going through a two, three year transition. We then go back to the country, uh, you know uh, the parties go back to the country for an election and they say, right, this election is about who would you like to now lead us finally out of the EU post transition. Let's say for argument's sake uh, the Labour Party were to win that election around about the time that the British economy possibly goes into recession because of long term problems in the economy. That will then get blamed on Brexit and you begin to have a narrow where perhaps uh, people start to, you know, latch onto, which is well, perhaps life was better in the EU, uh, and you perhaps you you can see multiple pathways. That is one Probably. that I actually think is quite plausible. And you know, yeah. an- another equally plausible scenario, of course, is that the Conservative Party, with support from the DUP and also some Labour MPs who are in very pro-Lease seats, that they actually do do manage to push through a version of Brexit that you might argue is a cleaner and more um, pure version of Brexit and is closer Ooh. to perhaps what people wanted at the referendum. People do not, ha- you know, I'm happy to be Mr Unpopular on this, people do not want EEA membership. It's quite, quite clear. Including do, the Norwegians. They really do not want that scenario. They don't want less power, influence and, and minor, very minor reforms to an issue that they feel intensely concerned about. Uh, they want funda- a fundamental break from the European Union. What you're really saying is put a pound down on now on Lib
0: Dems forming the government in 2025. Because they'll no, be, the be the party saying, let's go back in.
1: I think... Prime but, Minister well, Vince Cable at
0: age 82, or are he's going to be? Okay. Talking and editing, talking and editing. How does Brexit affect your company?
1: Very little, actually. Do you, surely you import lots of the stuff you sell from abroad? We do, and you know, one of the impacts on that is that uh, you know, we've had price increase problems, which is got yeah. to contain. On the other hand, about 40% of our sales are overseas, and the profitability on them is in euros, and dollars, uh, in euros and dollars, and that's gone up because the exchange rate's gone down. So roughly in balance. I mean, the projections that we've got for the outcome for the year really haven't altered all that much as a result of Brexit. Uh, you know, there's obviously people yeah. saying that uh, folk are not spending as much. Is well, that something you're seeing? Well, I mean, expenditure has held out actually remarkably well. Um, you know, the great British consumer is, is in quite reasonably good shape. Although uh, I do wonder, I do start to wonder where they're getting their money from, given the level of household debt. Yes. This, right. But this, of course, predates yes. the referendum. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, for us, finding the right product makes a difference of 20% or something. Consumer demand getting a little softer makes a difference of 1%. So, you know, our focus really is, is on the day-to-day side, getting the product range right. And, well, that must be great. Because some of the stuff you sell, you get to test them all out. Oh my goodness me, you do! Oh, but that it, must be it, brilliant. We didn't test everything and work not on our own judgment and experience, but on you know results of really careful consumer testing. We'd be out of business long ago. That must be a
0: great day. You get all this weird and wacky gadgets
1: and all sorts that you get to try out and see what works and what you like. Oh, that must incredibly be, difficult. It must be like Christmas be. come early. It, we look at about a thousand products a year develop about a hundred of them, which for us is very expensive, we're going to make a film, we're going to do all the regulatory work, yeah. we're to, because um, the way of selling is all with audiovisual support, you know, we've got to do all the packaging, all the testing of the product in use and all the rest of it, and of the hundred odd we do uh, each year, probably 80% fail. Really? Of the, of the 20% you're left with, probably a quarter of them in the end actually pay the rent. Just fly, okay. So Good. it's...
0: it's who does the voices for those adverts? Is it the same guy? Uh,
1: we've it got, no, 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 it's not me. <laughs> it not doesn't me. sound like you, but I thought maybe you on no, no, no. a voice for it. I mean, making, these, making films that actually sell is incredibly difficult as well. Um, you yeah, know, I suppose it is. You know, it, it's amazing how a- advertising agencies have a very different sort of world in which they operate when actually it's very difficult to tell whether this film is really pushing the sales up by this much or not. We know exactly. You know, we, we have... Data coming in every day. Okay. We know straight away if a film isn't working. What's, what's, product isn't selling. what's working just now? What's selling? We sell loads and loads of copper pans. We sell loads and loads of uh, irons. Okay, um, that's another very successful product we've got. We've got a special type of torch and so on. But the best product we've sold. More yeah, what's than your favorite? Any, what's the best? Any one? other over the years? Believe it or not, is ironing ball covers. We've sold 25 million ironing covers. Oh, that's, a bit, I left that's a bit boring. You've got all these wacky, yeah. trying achievement was to sell 25 million ironing covers. No, I didn't. <laughs> that's that's a, I You've got all these wacky gadgets in it, but I suppose, yeah, it's the basic ones that well. That nobody ever well. has ironing cover on the list when they go out shopping. Yes. Uh, you know, it's an absolutely classic impulse buy. Well, and finding
0: a good one is actually quite tricky. No, some of them are really got, annoying. You can't get them on your ironing board. We've oh, got,
1: oh no, no, our, our ironing boards fit all, all, practically yeah, well, all absolutely. sizes. Little we, ones. We've got one of those in the, a third of all the households in the UK now. up. <laughs> That's and an amazing product, thing. To this plan. is a product which has got absolutely no IP to it. Anybody can make these ironing board covers. There's no design rights or anything. It's, it's all in the marketing. Oh, I was hoping you are going to say
0: it's the hurricane spin scrubber or the miracle bamboo bra, or whatever that is. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the ones that stand very it. well too. Oh, okay.
1: And Brexit, you're not concerned about the outlook because of Brexit? Well, I mean, what really counts for us is how is the economy as a whole doing and therefore where is consumer confidence? I mean, that in the long term is a big, yeah. big important factor for but us. I suppose you've weathered economic storms before. They've uh, been around long enough. When when Woolworths went bust, which was a third of our turnover, that was a really serious. Oh, really? Yeah, that was a really serious event for us. Brexit is pretty little compared to that. Compared to Woolworths, um,
0: okay. Listen, let's do the finish up with the features. First of all, the best thing and worst thing. <laughs> best thing worst thing this one's for john john what's going to be the best thing about brexit
1: probably the best thing about brexit is that i think it was a huge shake-up there is now a bit more of a, of a willingness to look at different ways of doing things to have some sort of you know resolution I mean, if you look at some, what some think tanks are doing and ippr for example has got a a big program which i'm one of their commissioners you know, to seeing whether there's some sort of paradigm shift that's going to take place like it did in 1945, okay. like it did in, 19, in the 1970s, whether, you know, we need some new way of looking at the economy that's going to, to change things around. And mm. I don't think that would have happened if uh, we hadn't had Brexit. And the worst thing? There are some costs to the relative disunity you've got in Europe if we're not members of the uh, European Union Club. And uh, you know, I th- think that it, it's there are going to be relationships which are going to be more difficult to manage than they were before. So I mean, I do understand where people who are in favour of Remain are coming from. Mm. So the downsides are people. in the downsides are in foreign policy, if there are to be downsides. To well, I, I think the more disunited the West looks, uh, you know, that that doesn't help. Okay. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, And uh, recommendations. Uh, This feature is called In the Unlikely Event This Podcast Has Failed to Enlighten You Sufficiently.
1: In the Unlikely Event This Podcast Has Not Enlightened You Sufficiently.
0: I probably should have thought something catchier when I named it. You know, Brexit is massive. We don't understand it. It It's huge. This is why we're doing this podcast, to help people understand it. What would you recommend, uh, I'll go to you first, John, to understand Brexit?
1: I think it's rather difficult to know where to point people. I mean, it is a very complicated issue. Uh, mm. And I think most people have a sort of gut feeling about it all rather than mm. really, you know, uh, uh, being fully involved with what the difference is between the EEA and EFTA and all this sort of thing. Um, One of your publications? Uh, yes. Yes. I mean, I produce loads of stuff which has <laughs> yeah. gone out. and uh, I don't really Anyone see in that
0: particular you're... that sums it all up?
1: Um, well I've written books about this I've written bulletins about this for the for the Labour Party I and mean, this yeah. all the stuff that I've put forward. Matt
2: um help me understand Brexit what do you recommend? Well I think there's a lot there's a lot of research coming through which is good a lot of that is shared on the UK and a changing Europe Yes uh, of course website. UK, of course. Uh, I think the longer term picture is absolutely critical I think um, you know, we uh, published a book in 2014 called Revolt on the Right, which showed the rising levels of dissatisfaction among working class voters and the key groups that then went on to vote for Brexit. That kind of puts a long term picture in play. And earlier this year, we uh, published a book with Cambridge uh, called Brexit, Why Why Britain Voted to Leave the EU, in which we underline the importance of these uh, concerns over uh, identity and um, and, and and make the point that it, it you know it's not only feeling it's not only about feeling squeezed economically it's also it was also about a clear desire to, to see some changes around uh, migration and those issues basically you're both saying read my stuff yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: nice right new rule from now on you're not allowed to recommend your own stuff in the recommendation section That is John Mills and Matt Goodwin adding to the, uh, well, ignoble tradition, I think we might call it, of recommending your own book when I ask for recommendations on how to understand Brexit. Uh, No more of that. However, I will take this opportunity to recommend a book, Anand Menon, of this parish, often on this podcast, and he'll be back again in a couple of weeks. His book is out now. I do recommend it. He had a launch uh, last week, which was terribly... Uh, interesting and insightful with all sorts of big names from politics and academia I'd also recommend the play by James Graham called Labour of Love which is on in London if you're not in London bad luck but I hope it will tour in the not too distant future particularly to Nottingham where it's set Uh, it's all about the two wings of the Labour Party and how they reconcile and it's more interesting than that sounds but um, do see it if you can before it finishes uh, it just seems appropriate to that discussion we had about where Labour is at on Brexit and the, the two wings. So you can hear the new music in the background. It is called Favourite Secrets by Waylon Thornton. I like it, but when it was tried out on a consumer panel before we launched the podcast, they preferred Requiem for a Fish. So that's what you get But for now. But if you have a preference, do get in touch to express it. And maybe you're a bit musical and have time on your hands. In which case, please make me some theme music and send it to me for free. Um, It could happen. And since I've been faffing around with music and clips and stuff, I thought I'd let you hear something else that I uh, found on the internet. Um, In case you listened to that conversation and you were thinking, JML, John Mills' company, that sounds familiar. Well, that is because every time you go into Robert Dias or a shop like that, there will be adverts playing little videos for JML products, and they always have the same voiceover, and the man sounds like this.
1: Introducing the Point and Paint from JML. You literally point and paint.
0: Uh, My research tells me that he is called Mike Carson. I just feel he deserves some sort of credit for voicing these adverts. I also looked into some of the JML products you can buy this Christmas. Most exciting of which I think is probably the Woofwasher 360 to be some sort of like hula hoop that you put your dog through and it comes out clean uh there was uh, the slushy wonder that sounds good doesn't it bopping bugs seem to be the thing they're pushing for children bugs with a z of course because they're for the kids with a z um the star shower slideshow that sounds uh, that seems to be a big deal they're trying to push that quite hard it projects christmas images onto the outside of your house I'm um, slightly concerned by the well, I've written a book called The Gender Agenda, so you know, I'm concerned by the whole concept of a presence for men section, but in the presence for men section was a motion activated light, just anybody listening that knows me, I do not want a motion activated light in my stocking come Christmas morning so yes, that was in budget week, a discussion about the economy, I mean you know, there will be those who say I should have been looking up growth figures, and things like that, rather than looking through the jml catalog at odd things that they sell but i didn't we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another guest Uh, i can't tell you who that guest is going to be right now i know who it might be but i'm going to record another one of these next week and it might be better so i might do that one next either way it'll be interesting because we're moving on to remainers we've only had leavers on the podcast so far um but we're now moving into a, a era of remainers for the next few episodes so do tune in for that in the meantime, if you want to get in touch to express your feelings about the music, about the content of the podcast, to uh, recommend guests that we should speak to in future, please do get in touch. You can get me on the email at UKInAChangingEuropePodcasts at gmail.com But instead of trying to write that down, just get me on Twitter at Political Yeti or contact the UK in a Changing Europe team there at UK and EU on the Twitter or they are UK and is their website. My website is James-Miller.com. There you can see all the many recommendations that we've gathered over the last few episodes of this podcast. And if you do like this, please do like and subscribe. Subscribe to the podcast on your podcast providing platform. Like it, give it a nice review, and that will help us to reach more people and spread the knowledge about. Brexit. This has been the Brexit Breakdown Podcast, funded, supported by the Economic and Social Research Council and with the support of King's College London and produced by the UK in a changing Europe. Thank you.